Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we're talking with experimental psychologist Charles Spence about gastrophysics, including how sound can have a profound impact on flavor. You think, how often do you cry in response to seafood? Never, I think is the answer for most of us. Why am I even wearing headphones at all when I eat my seafood? 
and then at some point all of those sensory triggers sort of resolve themselves and you, and you kind of get it. Also toppings on hummus and searching the world for the best knife. But first, my interview with Nikki Twilly, who volunteered to taste her way through alternative sugars. Nikki, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. Let's start with that we consume here in the States three pounds of sugar per week or some enormous amount. And so the industry is looking for ways to deliver the same level of sweetness but with fewer calories. Yeah, that's the the huge problem. The average American, I think, consumes something ridiculous like 19 teaspoons of added sugar a day. And the World Health Organization says you should be doing six teaspoons max, ideally three. So that is a huge gap. And food companies are trying to figure out how they can do something about it. Our sugar receptors... I think the quote is, are tuned to the level of a ripe banana. <laughs> in other words, you have to use a lot of sugar to know it's sweet versus bitterness. You can you can tell right off. Yeah, our receptors are tuned to help us find sweet, delicious things. You know, when we were roaming around the forest looking for fruit and we weren't surrounded by ice cream and chocolate and candies, they are much, much less sensitive than our bitter receptors because bitter receptors are meant to detect things that might kill us. The other problem is that sugar isn't just sweet. There's color, there's mouthfeel. So part of the problem is if you remove sugar, you've got to put something else back, right, to imitate the whole experience. Oh, yeah. Sugar is integral. I mean, this is why sugar shows up in foods that you don't even think of as sweet, things like, you know, mayonnaise or dressing for salads or things like that. It's because it's so useful and it's so cheap. And so food manufacturers just use it in everything. So let's take some specific examples of these alternate sugars. Uh, Nestle launched a couple of years ago Milky Bar Wowsums, a crispy filling surrounded by a shell of chocolate 30% less sugar, but they eventually pulled it from the market because people didn't like the the texture. Yeah, so this was their attempt to debut what they call structured sugar. So this was a really ingenious solution where they took a sugar crystal, they mixed it with dried milk, and they sort of sprayed it out of a gun. So it all dried into this porous sort of structure. So imagine like a pumice stone rather than a dense Mm -hmm. rock. So you're getting fewer calories because there's all these holes, but more surface area. And it enabled them to use 30% less sugar, but people didn't like it. So one solution is to change the structure and aerate it. The other is to add pluses. So what are pluses and how are they fit into this whole model? Yeah, and people have developed a range of sort of fibers and sugar alcohols and things like that that you can add back in to replace those missing, um, the missing bulk and mouthfeel and crispiness. But a lot of people complain that the fiber brings a sort of beany taste, which is not what you're looking for often in a sweet food. Um, So we might not even know why we don't like something, but that's what's going on. Often you're detecting these kind of off notes, these weird sensations, without even necessarily being able to articulate it. There's another part to this you describe, which is really interesting. 
you're getting a message from the brain saying, hey, a whole bunch of sugar is about to enter the bloodstream here. But it turns out it's a sugar that is actually twice as potent, so there's less of it. Is that a problem with the body trying to figure out how to balance everything? Yeah, that was my concern too. After I had sampled (laughs) hundreds of these, (laughs) I thought, what am I doing? You know, I'm telling my body to gear up, produce all this insulin, be ready for this massive wave of sweetness that's about to hit it. And then there's, you know, only 40% of the sugar. Isn't my body going to get fed up if I keep telling it to freak out and then there's no reason to freak out? According to scientists, that is not necessarily a problem. There is a built-in safety net that will sort of uh, tell your pancreas to calm down and not send your, your blood sugar levels wild. But there is a lot we don't understand about what eating sweet things and having those sweet signals in our body is doing other than just making us happy. So one is that There are sweet taste receptors all over our body. They're in our lungs. They're in our digestive tract. They're in our skin. Um, Men have them in their testes. And there's another, this was astonishing to me. Our bodies are so clever. There are two different kinds of sweet taste receptors. They both taste sweet, but one is only happy if that sweetness is coming with calories. It can tell if you're trying to fool it, basically. So what are some of the artificial sugars? I mean, you tasted a bunch. First of all, what was the tasting like? What did you taste? Well, it's so interesting that you say artificial sugars because I kept saying that too, and everyone kept saying, no, these are sugar. They're just slightly tweaked. And that's what makes them different from this whole history that we have of artificial sweeteners, which are completely different chemicals that just happen to taste sweet. So there's an Israeli startup that has a really cool product called Incredo, They mix tiny, tiny grains of silica, a 50th the size of a human hair, really tiny, inside the sugar crystal. So if you picture a sugar crystal as like a blueberry muffin, the silica is the blueberries. And what that does is, okay, that's space that is not being taken up by sugar now. And weirdly, the addition of silica makes the sugar that is next to it turn into a slightly different format. And that tastes sweeter for some reason on your tongue. Uh, I talked to a chef who was working with Incredo, and she said, actually, for some things, it's perfect. Chocolate, it's great. Shortbread cookies, amazing. Actually makes them a little crispier. But for cakes, it's really hard. And you do have to add back in something to make up that missing bulk. It's it's so interesting for 99% of human history, we basically had nothing sweet, right? Except unless you were rich. This is a very new phenomenon in evolutionary terms, and it's like a wildfire. It's, it's totally out of control. Completely. And it's, I think it's sort of unfair to expect us to be able to control ourselves when it is in so much food all around us and our right. bodies have not evolved a way to, to tell us that that's too much. So I said to one of the scientists, you know, can we not just evolve to... Uh, a bit of restraint now that we live in a different environment. You know how your environment shapes you in evolutionary terms. And he said, well, sure. Have you got (laughs) 200,000 years? Um, And of course we don't. Right. So your thoughts for the future, 20, 30 years from now, where do you think we're going to be with sugar? I'm kind of a 
Puritan at heart. You know, this business of being able to have sweet things without any consequences, it seems wrong. <laughs> but, but at the same time, some scientists actually think we are going to be able to pull it off. And if we can pull it off, we could have all the pleasure of sugar without the disastrous consequences. I mean, the the teeny-weeny hedonistic part of me that hasn't been squashed by my Puritan soul feels like that sounds amazing. In general, we have not proven to be terrific at fooling our bodies. But, you know, science moves fast. Who knows? Nikki, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was Nikki Twilley, the host of Gastropod. Her article for The New Yorker is The Race to Redesign Sugar. Now it's time for my co-host Sarah Moulton and I to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah's the author of Home Cooking 101 and, of course, star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. So before we take calls, Sarah, I do have a question. I would bet there's something really embarrassing going on in your kitchen occasionally. You use some convenience product. You eat marshmallows every night after cocktails. You do something you don't want anybody to know about. So tell me, what is that thing? Peanut M&Ms I keep in the freezer. I have five every day with great relish. And I don't even like milk chocolate, but I just love peanut M&Ms. And I love them frozen, even though that's counterintuitive, too, because if something's frozen, it doesn't have as much flavor. But so there is, you go. is this a bedtime snack or is this no, 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 not spaced bedtime. out during the day or what? No, it's after lunch. I have iced coffee and five peanut M&Ms. I go to hell with myself. <laughs> what can I tell you? And don't tell anybody else, okay, Chris? I was not expecting that. It's like Julia Child and her Pepperidge Farm goldfish that she pulled out for an hors d'oeuvre when she didn't feel like making one. Every time I went over there, she had goldfish. Had goldfish, yeah. Well, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Glenn from Pickering, Ontario, Canada. Hi, Glenn. How can we help you today? Well, I was just speaking with my doctor recently, and he suggested that I go on the Mediterranean diet. The reason I'm calling today is I want to start implementing this into our daily meal routines. So my wife and I, we work 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. And to be honest with you, by the time we get home, we're not really in the mood to spend a lot of time cooking dinner. So can you give me some simple ideas and advice to get us on the path to using this diet in our lives? Right. So there's a couple things you can do. Whenever I make dinner, I have at least three elements, and I make sure that I focus on one of them, and the other two are just simple as can be. You could cook up a batch of farro or brown rice on a weekend and then just park it in the fridge, and then you can just quickly reheat it. Or if you wanted to make them fancy, then you could add other things to them, like some nuts with some chopped fresh herbs. Roasted vegetables are very easy. You could even buy, sometimes in the supermarket, already cut up vegetables. You just put it in a 425 oven tossed with olive oil, a little salt and pepper, And then you can focus on the protein, which could be either fish or lean chicken or pork. I also want to encourage you to embrace a few frozen vegetables. Frozen peas are just fine. Frozen corn is just fine. One thing I know a friend of mine does, Jose Andres, he will get a big pot of water boiling almost every night. And he'll just throw vegetables in it in order, depending on how long they take to cook. So he might have three or four vegetables in there, drain them, put them on a huge platter, 
some really nice fruity olive oil on top and salt. You could throw some fresh herbs on it if you like, but that is sort of the centerpiece of his table all the time is just boiled vegetables, not steamed, you know, not sautéed. I agree with Sarah about grains. You know, a rice cooker can do a lot of different grains if you get an electric one. You think about grains as the base, the foundation. For example, there's some cuisines where they think about rice as sort of the thing that absorbs the sauces along with vegetables uh, and, and protein. So you think about that as sort of your base, which is great. And then I would think about vegetables as the center of the plate. There are plenty of cuisines, most cuisines, where, you know, Europe had a lot of meat, and America has a lot of meat as the center of the plate, but most places don't because meat's expensive. It's more of a flavoring. So go get cookbooks and recipes where vegetables really are the key component of most dishes uh, and think about cooking that way. So those are my quick ticks. Yes, good ideas. Oh, that was great. Thanks for the tips, guys. All right, Glenn, I hope that was helpful. Thanks, Take care. guys. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a question, give us a call anytime at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Caitlin in Burbank, California. And how can we help you? I've been having some trouble with bread lately. Here's my situation. Everything is fine on the first rise, but once I shape the dough and leave it to prove a second time, it can rise like super inconsistently. Like 90% of it is even and lovely, but there's always like one corner that's either like crazy puffy or it's flat and sad. And this has happened to me twice lately, both on a brioche and a focaccia. I'm wondering like what it is that I'm doing wrong in either the shaping or in the second rise that's like making it really inconsistent. I think it's about the shaping because, and you said it wasn't in the middle, it was at a corner. You know, one trick is when you're shaping something that's rounder, you tuck the edges in underneath to get in a nice taut mm-hmm. outer surface so it rises nicely. But my guess is you are overworking at one of the edges. It's too thin. I don't think it's proofing time or rising time because if the rest of the dough rises properly, it's clearly a shaping problem. Is that right, Sarah? Would you agree? I agree. It's a thickness issue. Yeah. You know, focaccia is somewhat free form. Yeah. So if it's free form, it's much harder to keep it the same thickness. Did you say brioche was one of them? Yeah. One corner was like a little Franken brioche. It was all puffy and all of the other corners rose really nicely. Yeah. I wonder if you'd want to do it in a loaf pan instead. I did. Can I ask you a question going back to focaccia? How do you shape the dough when you shape it? I just stretched it out by hand. So you have it on a floured surface and you're just using the palms of your hand and stretching it out? Yep, and then just use my fingers to poke the holes in it. And are you stretching it out from the center, essentially? I never really thought about it that way. If you start stretching from the outside, like pushing the edges out, that's the problem Mm -hmm. sometimes. Instead, if you do most of your shaping from the center out, you're not going to be playing with the edges as much and you won't overwork them. Okay. And another question I have is when you shape it, is the dough snapping back on you at all or is it pretty much staying in place as you shape it? A little bit, but I don't think it was like an abnormal amount. It seemed pretty okay. Yeah, I make a pizza dough, which is based on a focaccia recipe. After I shape it, I let it sit 20 minutes, then I top it, then I let it sit another 20 minutes. So 
giving yeah. a lot of time after shaping really would help. Okay. That doesn't explain the brioche, though. <laughs> well, no. With the brioche, if one of the corners puffs right up, I would say that's the special part and say it's a special brioche. Oh, that's the Julia rule. <laughs> never apologize, yeah. never explain. Is the inside of that portion that rose more properly cooked and a good texture? It all tasted really good. Like, it, it came out good. It just looked really funny. I'm with Sarah. As yeah, long as never it tasted, apologize. Yeah, as long as yeah. it tasted good, who cares? And you know what? You'll <laughs> keep making it. It sounds like you will. And uh, you'll probably figure it out just with repetition. All right. I will I will embrace my flawed brioche. Yes, do that. Don't call it flawed. No, find a French <laughs> adjective for it. Come on, Sarah, help her out here. What uh, is she going to call it? Extraordinaire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Brioche extraordinaire. Yeah. Yes, there brioche you go. Brioche magnifique. Yes, there you go. Yeah, that's perfect. Much better. Oh, merci All beaucoup. Right. All right. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Thanks so much. Yeah, okay. our pleasure. Bye. Nice Bye-bye. to talk to you. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Charles Spence on the science of taste. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. 
It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. My next guest, Charles Spence, asked the deep philosophical question, what are flavors? Do they exist in the food itself or in the interaction between the diner and what he or she is eating? At his lab at Oxford University, he investigates not just the nature of food, but how we perceive the world around us. Charles, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, what is gastrophysics? So it's a new word. It's a long word. Um, it combines gastronomy on the one side. And then the other, the physics comes from, not from regular physics, but from psychophysics, which is a branch of psychology where you try and systematically study what people perceive uh, to try and understand the sensory triggers that really drive our enjoyment and perception in the world of food and drink. There's some famous examples of these experiments. I think you teamed up with Heston Blumenthal, mm -hmm. uh, who was the proprietor and chef at Fat Duck. Um, the one I didn't know about was a group of diners were presented with scoops of bacon and egg ice cream, <laughs> playing sizzling bacon for some of the diners and then clucking chickens for another. And the results were different in terms of taste perception. That is right. Back in 2007, we had about 150 people who paid their money to come and see some sort of food experimentation going on. And um, as the date approached, the chef and I hadn't done enough planning we didn't know quite what to do to entertain these people uh, and it was in that sort of moment of uh, panic almost they said why not do something crazy and so we thought why not just play the sounds of sizzling bacon of uh, farmyard chickens uh, and see what happens never thinking it would work because why would it why would ambient soundscapes affect the taste of food and yet the results from those people showed a very clear difference that we could bring out the bacony flavor by playing the sizzling bacon sounds, bring out the egginess in the ice cream uh, by playing the uh, farmyard chicken sounds. And at the same time, we showed that you could uh, enhance people's enjoyment of oysters by playing the sounds of the sea as compared to modern jazz music. I interviewed Heston Blumenthal a while back. 
He said that when people listened to these sounds, which I guess were available on an iPod at the time, uh, Sound of the Sea or A Summer Day by the Sea, he said that some people actually started crying. Yes. So this wasn't just a function of heightening the flavor of oysters or caviar. It was deeply resonant on some other level. Absolutely. Um, you think, how often do you cry in response to seafood? Never, I think is the answer for most of us. And yet it does, for a remarkable number of people, trigger that uh, response. Uh, and what is it that causes people to cry? I suspect it's maybe in the Sound of the Sea case, it might be that the Sound of the Sea is kind of a nostalgic sound. Our childhoods were probably spent at the seaside, and maybe it triggers that nostalgia and emotion on the one hand. But I think on the other, uh, I wonder whether it's not a case that... Um, when you're sort of presented with all this stuff in one of these fancy molecular modernist restaurants, there's like too much going on. You can't quite make head or tail of it. Why are those sounds in the headphones? Why am I even wearing headphones at all when I eat my seafood? Um, and then at some point, all of those sensory triggers sort of resolve themselves and you, and you kind of get it. That I've never heard that before. It's a fascinating theory. So resolving complexity and tension into simplicity is... <laughs> part of the powerful emotion here? I think so. Uh, and if they cry, that normally means something bad, doesn't it? It means they're upset. But that sort of response, I think, is clearly a legitimate and oftentimes pleasurable or memorable response to a dish in a restaurant, but it's just one that's you know hard to tease apart, perhaps, from, from other reasons for crying that you might have. So what does science know or suspect about the relationship between taste, aroma, emotion, and memory. The pleasures of the table primarily reside in the mind and not in the mouth. And by that I mean that you know we all think, we all experience the taste of food and drink in our mouths, but that is just such a wonderful trick or illusion that all of our brains play on us, because what we taste, uh, both what we think we taste and how much we enjoy that experience, really comes from the combination or the integration of uh, of what's going on in our taste buds on the tongue, but also of smell and of sight and of sound and of texture. And of course, beyond that, kind of mood and emotion play in too. And all of those cues first come together and are integrated in our brains. So that's where flavour experience, in a way, really happens. We can see and we can hear and we can touch and we can taste. And those are all separate senses on the outside with our eyes and ears and nose and so on. But in fact, wherever you look in the brain, it seems that the senses are integrated and in a way, for me as a multisensory scientist, there's nothing that is more multisensory that engages more senses than flavor. We've talked about enhancing the experience of eating through auditory signals, but the opposite's also true. I think on an airplane with a very loud background noise, uh, your sensory perception is lower. That's right. Um, very loud background uh, music has been shown to interfere with our ability to taste in ways that um, for me are really interesting because you might just think well loud noise that's just sort of masks everything you can't taste anything with loud noise and yet it turns out that the impact of uh, at least airplane noise is very specific curiously specific in that um, airplane noise seems to impair people's ability to taste sweetness uh, perhaps also saltiness but it actually enhances their experience of umami, that mysterious fifth taste that you find in tomatoes and mushrooms and parmesan cheese and so on. And that explains why it is that so many of us will drink tomato juice or Bloody Mary 
only on an aeroplane and never think about ordering that while we're on the ground. I guess also you've done studies to indicate that visual clues make a difference. Mm -hmm. So vision plays a really important role in helping us to predict what something will taste like. So if I see something that's brightly coloured, I probably expect it to be intensely tasty. If I see something pinkish, I probably expect it to be sweet. If I see it yellow and green, it's probably going to be sour. So there are lots of associations and expectations we all have with colour in food. And by studying those associations, you can bias people's expectations before they taste. In the case that I start my gastrophysics book with, from Chef Heston Blumenthal, the chef served a pink ice cream. And that pink colour is really the colour of um, frozen crab bisque or smoked salmon ice cream. The pink is natural, it's perfect. It's just that his diners, who haven't been told what this dish is called yet, are imagining raspberry. And if you imagine raspberry and sweet, and you taste savoury, that's a great example where modernist or molecular cuisine can start to kind of pull apart the senses in a dish. Does this go beyond the expensive restaurant (laughs) into the world of the everyday man or woman? I mean, in other words, why do I care? about whether Heston Blumenthal can do Sound of the Sea or not, right? The question is fair. Who cares what goes on at the fancy restaurants? They're too expensive. They're too difficult to get a table at. This is going to be relevant. Sort of curious, entertaining, but nothing more than that. Uh, But for me, I think, no. Um, In fact, so often what I've seen is that we come across some scientific insight in the lab, uh, and that's then passed on to the food companies and to the chefs. My favourite example is of how Patagonian toothfish... Uh, a fish that sounds so unpleasant that when you see it, a picture of this fish, it looks unpleasant, but it's sustainable, it's healthy, it's nutritious. Um, we should all be eating more of it. No one ate it, but simply by changing the name of that fish on restaurant menus to uh, Chilean sea bass, suddenly sales increased by 1,200% uh, as a result. So potentially this is all sort of very powerful stuff. But when you find some of these illusions, you can illustrate to people how their mind is playing tricks on them in a way, but then beyond that, think about how one can incorporate that knowledge into the better design of of everyday things, be it the food on your plate or, or the environment in which we work and live. Okay, so let's do a few experiments now to put theory into practice. And so what are we going to start with? Uh, I think we should start with uh, a little bit of toffee. What I'd like you to do is um, get a piece of toffee ready, and when you hear the first piece of music start, then uh, bite into the toffee and think about how bitter or sweet it tastes. Still eating. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Maybe think of a ten-point scale where uh, one is very bitter and ten is, is, is very, very sweet. Um... I'd say six. Okay, so six out of ten for sweetness. Well, give it seven. Okay, we'll give it seven. Uh, And now if you want to get another piece of toffee ready and cue up the next soundscape. Much less bitter and more mellow. I'd say... Instead of a seven, it'd be more of a nine. So, probably on on average, people would uh, associate the first tinkling track more with sweetness. 
Whereas if you had to associate a taste with a second sound, because lower in pitch, people would more often associate that with bitter. Well, either I'm perfectly designed for my job or I should get fired. <laughs> I, I, th I thought the deeper sounds were smoother and more comforting. And the bitterness, which I associate with sharp, was more connected to the sharper tingling sounds. Yeah. But that's just me. So this is why in, uh, in our experiments then we'll do um, test 10 or 100 or 1,000 or 3,000 people because there's no right answer to this. People always say that when, in fact, there is a right answer. <laughs> you know that. No, no, there's a, there's a consensual answer. Okay, that's I right. know what the majority of people will say, but there's no correct answer. Okay, the second one is... So next what I'd like you to try is to bite into two potato chips. Okay. Um, and... We're going to change the crunching sounds that you will hear as you okay. bite into each one. And this time, think not about sweetness and bitterness, but think about how crunchy, crisp and fresh that potato chip is. Uh, and then if you've got your next potato chip ready, when you hear the sound, take a bite out of it. And again, think about how crisp or fresh or stale or soggy it is. Hmm, that actually worked. <laughs> the first one uh, really was crispier. The second one was definitely soggier. Mm -hmm. yeah. In these two cases, the sound that you hear is kind of related to the thing you're eating in the, in the potato chip example. Right. So your brain's got more reason to connect. Yeah, that, no, that was um, had a very real impact on my experience. Okay, uh, so what's the third here? We have a, I have a bottle of Guinness. Uh, this time, when you uh, hear the music start, then take a sip. Okay. Of your Guinness and think about the taste. Anything in particular in the taste I'm looking for? Uh, probably think about the uh, bitter and sweet. Okay. Okay. So they're ready for a second mouthful? Yep. Sounds like Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> I'd say the first one was sweeter, the second one was more bitter. So it's kind of impossible to, to use music to turn water into wine uh, so far. But what you can do is take a, a complex taste and draw people's attention to something in what they're tasting. That's pretty amazing. We've got like sweet music, we've got sour music, we've got spicy, we've got bitter. Salty we're struggling with, but I think we've almost got it there. Um, and by drawing attention to these... Almost sonic equivalences of tastes and of flavors. We can sort of bias your perception, your experience. Can I make a career suggestion for you? I would drop everything and figure out the music that turns water into wine. Because I think, I think you'd be a very wealthy professor very would, quickly. I'd be too busy to be on this radio show, that's for sure. Yeah, you're never going to talk to me again, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Charles, uh, it's been just uh, a lot of fun. And uh, there's some deep themes here, which I find fascinating. Thanks for being on Mill Street. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That was Charles Spence. His book is Gastrophysics, The New Science of Eating. We're told that reality is subjective, that each of us has his or her own set of facts, and that nothing is absolutely true. This flies in the face of the Enlightenment, modern science, and even Buddhist philosophy, which maintains that there is an objective reality beyond individual perception. Humans can only see part of the light spectrum, for example, or hear a range of sounds, 
Or as author Jim Taylor pointed out, just because we cannot hear a dog whistle, that doesn't mean that the sound does not exist. Just go ask a dog. It's time to chat with Raina Javeri about this week's recipe, hummus with chipotle black beans and tomato salsa. Raina, how are you? I'm well, Chris. Thank you. You know, about a year ago, I was in Israel, and I finished the trip in Tel Aviv, and I thought, well, okay, I'll go get classic hummus, right? So I went to the oldest and most venerable hummus joint in town, Shlomo and Duran, and there's this young guy there, and he wasn't about to serve me hummus hummus. He had Mexican hummus and Balkan hummus and shakshuka hummus and everything else, you know, falafel hummus. I was kind of shocked because I figured, you know, this is supposed to be the bastion of tradition. But Tel Aviv is a very modern town, and people are always, you know, having fun with their food. I really fell in love with it, especially the Mexican hummus. I just think it worked well. So put aside our purest authenticity here, and let's play with hummus. Totally, Chris. I mean, I'm a purist myself, and fusion food has a difficult place in my in my world. However, this one broke me. This is a Mexican twist on hummus that added so much complexity and texture to the dish. We have smooth black beans, crisp jalapenos, fresh pico de gallo, and even some broken tortilla chips. It's a whole new way of thinking about hummus. Well, hummus is the foundation. Right. It's definitely second place with all the other flavors, right? There is a lot of flavor, but we're going to start this dish using canned chickpeas. And we're going to simmer them in their own liquid, along with some baking soda to break down the skins a little. We cook them with the typical food processor method. Exactly. I mean, the liquid of the chickpeas, it's called aquafaba, which is an amazing way of bringing all the ingredients together. So when the chickpeas are fairly broken down, we drain them, reserve some of that cooking liquid, then we add them to a food processor, process about three minutes, add salt, lime juice, and tahini, as well as the additional cooking liquid at the end. So that's the base. Okay, so the black beans, you could either just put black beans on top, which I think is what they did at Shlomo Duran. But I think here we decided actually to puree them so you'd have two, you know, is similar to the texture of the hummus, right? Exactly. So we're making a second bean puree. Again, we're going to use a food processor to combine the black beans and their reserved liquid, along with some lime juice and cumin, as well as some chipotle chilies in adobo sauce. So this gives it like a really nice smoky flavor. And we top that off with some cilantro and pulse about two or three times. We were really happy with this. I think there are a lot of people in Tel Aviv probably who aren't. <laughs> they pointed out that some of the old timers there were kind of like, wait a minute. But this is one of those fusion things that, as you said, kind of makes sense. You know, it, it really does. So we got the hummus, the chickpeas, we got the black bean puree, and now we need those fanciful toppings, right? So definitely, we want to change up the texture and add some more flavor. We're going to combine tomatoes, onion, jalapeno, lime juice, and salt. Once that's mixed, we're going to start layering. So we start with the hummus, top that with the black bean puree, spoon on this tomato salsa, and finish with some crunchy tortilla chips and fresh cilantro. Well, I don't think we're getting high marks for authenticity here, but it sure did taste good. So a great recipe from the heart of Tel Aviv, hummus with chipotle black beans and tomato salsa. Thank you, Reina. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for hummus with chipotle black beans and tomato salsa at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Next up, French food scientist Alex Inews on finding the perfect knife. We'll be right back.
You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag. A watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, it's Mike Russell from Woodstock, Vermont. Yes, very good. <laughs> so how can we help you? About five years ago, I started growing kiwi berries to grow them commercially. And you know, when we go to bring them to market, we always have some that aren't suitable for sale. And so we started to experiment with making jellies. And our first attempt ended up coming out really thick and dense. 
very similar to a membrio. You want to explain what a membrio is? Oh, sure. It's a very firm paste made out of quince um, that the Spanish often put on a hard cheese. And so we are trying to make something similar. We'd really like it to be something that you could slice as opposed to something that you're spreading. And I assume you've tried pectin. We did pectin the very first time, and it was tacky and kind of almost clumpy. And we've experimented with using a food mill and jelly bags to get down to pretty much pure liquid. Are you using the low-sugar pectin or the regular pectin? Regular pectin. And I assume this is fairly low-sugar? Well, the fruit itself is very high-sugar. I would say it's all about using pectin and using the right amount. That's all I can tell you, because otherwise it's not yeah. going to be sliceable. One more time. So when you use pectin, the problem was what? It was almost clumpy as opposed to um, a firm block. That makes me think that maybe it needs more liquid with it. Maybe for a sliceable log or rectangle, yeah. you need to have a higher proportion of liquid of water in this and less fruit. Yeah. I would definitely go with pectin, but I would increase the amount of water in this recipe to get not as clumpy a final product. That's interesting because the quince paste recipes that I was able to find, they all use water, obviously, to boil down the fruit, but the quince is much firmer than the kiwi berry. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll give that a try next time. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of. Sarah, do you have words? No, no, I, I'm a little bit out of my league because I'm not a big jelly maker. I do know that kiwi is low in pectin, so that obviously could be a factor here. But other than that, I defer to you, Chris. I think it's more water and just adjust the pectin. You're trying something new, Mike, and I applaud you. That's great. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, even though it's not quite the consistency you want, people can't stop eating it. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. Maybe you develop something new. Why does it have to be like Membrio? Why yeah, I mean, can't it be yeah, its own thing? Right. Exactly. I mean, my answer to everything is, if they like it, you're done. Yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah, worry well, about it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Mike, it's been a pleasure. Give that a shot. Yes. And let us know how it goes. Yeah. I will. Thank you okay. very much for your suggestion. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Yep, take, take care. care. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need some help, please give us a call. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Suzanne. I'm calling from Northport, Alabama. Okay. How can we help you? When I thaw out leftovers that have a cream or a milk-based gravy or creamed soups, the creamed liquid always looks curdled. Heating the food doesn't cause that liquid to smooth out. It doesn't affect the taste at all. It just looks unappetizing. And I was wondering if you have any suggestions on how to prevent it from happening. How do you defrost it? Generally, I just let it sit out. Well, that's not a bad way to do it. My guess is it's the ice crystals, you know, that form, and then the fat droplets in the milk or cream or whatever get punctured, and then you get separation. The only suggestion I make is maybe put it in the refrigerator overnight so a really slow defrost might help a little bit. But I don't think I have a solution to that problem. I don't think freezing in smaller quantities is going to help you very much. But I think the refrigerator at a slower rate might be the only thing that could help. 
it's that fat, you know, those droplets are separating out and curdling. Sarah, any suggestions? Well, I have a crazy idea, which <laughs> is, uh, no, seriously, it just came to me. When you go to reheat it, maybe what you could do is add a slurry, which is a starch mixture of flour and water, cornstarch and water, or arrowroot and water. When it separates out, take a little bit of flour with equal amount of water, whisk it together, and then whisk it into the curdled mixture, and it, it might bring it back enough to look appetizing, meaning it will re-thicken it. Are these like cream soups, or is this a creamy stew? What is it you're freezing? Generally, it's both the soup and I like making veal paprikash. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So it's still got the pieces of meat in it and the onions and stuff. I generally don't make completely smooth soups. So there's always something chunky in it. Now Sarah's decided to be crazy. I'm going to be crazier. Okay. Sarah, you ready? Yeah. I would separate the liquid creamy part out from the solids before you freeze it. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. And now here's the really crazy part. I'm going to steal Sarah's idea by creating a slurry of cornstarch and then whisking it in to that liquid and so before you freeze it, you've stabilized the fat in the liquid and then defrost them separately in the refrigerator. But if you stabilize ahead of time, that might – kind of crazy, but that might actually work. First of all, I try the refrigerator overnight first. But if that doesn't work, I would try that. If you're using, say, heavy cream or creme fraiche, both of which have a much higher butterfat content as opposed to regular whole milk or any other kind of milk or even sour cream or yogurt, those tend to break a lot faster. First of all, we know if you boil them without a starch in there, but also I think when you freeze them, the lower fat dairy products tend to curdle more. So if for some reason you wanted to use cream instead of milk, you might have better success defrosting them. However, you may not want your soups to be that rich. Just a thought. Typically, I use like whole milk or maybe heavy cream. Cream would be more stable than whole milk for sure. Okay. I would definitely separate out the two though. Yeah. Then you can either do what Sarah suggests or what I suggest. At least you could deal with the sauce separately. Yeah. Okay. It would be great if you let us know how this goes. We always like to know if our crazy ideas work. I sure will. Thanks for calling. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Jack Wilson of Pound Ridge, New York, and I have a tip for better and more exciting wok cookery. I love to stir fry, but my round bottom wok doesn't work well with my stove. Instead of adapting my recipes to a flat pan on the stove top, I've used a variety of alternative outdoor heating sources. I've used the burner from a turkey fryer, charcoal in a grill, and most interestingly, a live wood fire, either a campfire or fire in a fire pit by just plunking the wok down directly in the fire. The high heat and smoke from the live fire heat sources improves the flavor of the stir fry and it's fun to incorporate a wok into your outdoor cooking or campfire meals. A metal handled carbon steel wok works best for these techniques, but you can make it work with a variety of different woks. I highly recommend it. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor, Alex iNews. Alex, how are you? Hey, Chris, how are you? What's going on uh, in your Paris studio? 
you know what's going on. I've got a problem, Chris. As always, I've got a problem. I'm facing like a life dilemma. Okay? I've had a few of those. I, I can help you with that. I, th that's what I thought. You're my therapist when it comes to cooking in general. <laughs> so my problem is about knives. All my life, I've been looking, I've been on the hunt for the best, the ultimate chef knife. When I started cooking like seriously, my dad got me a, a really cool knife, a sabatier knife, so a French knife. That's a chef knife. That's a, an all-arounder. I don't know if you're familiar with French knives. Oh, yes, I have some Sabatier, yeah. That's what I thought as well. So that knife was super. I, I developed my love for cooking with it. But then... <laughs> you fell in love with another... <laughs> That's the problem. You know me, Chris, already. This is a love story. Problem is, I went to Japan. Uh-oh. Exactly. Yeah. There's no going back from this. No. I went to Japan and I discovered just like knives. Yeah. There was a knife for every right. little purpose in the kitchen. So... What did I do? I bought as many knives as I could. So I bought a, a chicken wing knife. That's how specific you can get. I'm, I'm sure you must have like Japanese knife yourself as well. Well, the thing is the blade is so much thinner. And so the European chef's knife feels like a chainsaw when, <laughs> when you start using a Japanese knife because you're pushing less metal through the food. And so it goes through so much easier. And I, I don't... I don't understand the European chef's knife. It's like the heavier, the better, right? I mean, it's it's this race exactly. to weight. And the Japanese have the opposite, which is they, they want the lighter, thinner knife, which I think is brilliant. It's like, it's like discovering technology when you come from the Stone Age. It's like yeah. you discover something that is refined, yeah. thin, like a professional tool. And it's dedicated for the job. I, I've seen these soba knife, the, the knife to, to cut soba noodles. I, I just want one. I want all the knife. That was one of the problems, <laughs> I must say. Because basically, it's, it's like a bottomless spending bad habit to love Japanese knives. Yeah, every time you pick up a Japanese knife, you love that one more. <laughs> exactly, right? exactly. But then something else happened afterwards. I started getting really into a specific Chinese dish, so mapo tofu. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I can't make it a Chinese dish with a Japanese knife. So I thought, I'm going to use a Chinese cleaver. Here you go. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. Anyways, I got one. It's, it's not expensive, this one. So it's called a chai dao. It's thin, as thin as a naikiri. The steel is quite amazing, I must say, because it, it remains to be sharp for a very long time. And the fact that the blade is so tall and so wide, I started scooping things out of the table, using it as a shovel. But also, you can cut through a whole head of cabbage super easily. You can also like do precise deboning work. You can also, you, you can slice a clove of garlic with it too. Exactly, you, you can smash yeah. it as well. And I basically, I'm just cooking with it all the time for all foods. So... My problem in the end is that basically I've got like drawers and drawers full of knives. I've got knives everywhere in this studio. And then I just fell in love with a all-arounder instead of all the knives that I had in the past where I was looking for control. Well, you know, Alex, you're just coming of age, man. I mean, like when you're 20, you fall in love with everybody you meet. But when you're a little older, you, you realize, oh, uh, yeah, th th this, is, this is true love, right? Exactly. I can't believe you're bringing that up because that was exactly my point. My first love was local. I just went with it, fell in love with it. Amazing. But then I was looking for more, more control, more 
technique, more, more everything. And then it just feels normal to go Japanese knives at that moment. And then just going back, I feel like I'm slightly wiser. So I want to get all that clutter out of my life. And I feel like the Chinese cleaver encapsulates all that. Like I've been working with a, a Chinese chef. I was learning how to make dumplings. And she told me that as I was wrapping up these dumplings, I was also making weird moves with my mouth. I was <laughs> wasting energy. And she told me, use that energy and put it at the tip of your fingers. This way you will be more efficient. <laughs> Whoa, that, that's, that's an advice you, you cannot come up with like this. This is something mystical. <laughs> the Chinese cleaver, it feels like it's the sum up of a whole civilization, their approach, how they deal with tools. They are the tool. You are the tool yourself. You adapt to whatever is coming. You fuse with the food almost. Alex, I know uh, the Chinese cliver is not just a knife. It's the philosophy of, of the ages. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was YouTube host Alex Inews. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen to every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, just go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, take a free online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Executive producer, Tanya Ott. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Eglock. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.